The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at this time, I'm going to invite our guest speaker to come forward. This is Pastor Peter Huang. For those of you who've been part of our church will recognize him. He is a good friend of not only myself, but of this church family because he grew up in this church. So let's welcome our guest speaker for today, Pastor Peter. Come on up. Hello, hello. All right, great to be here again. Uh, again, my name is Peter. Um, glad to be worshiping with you. I see the sun is out. Um, earlier it was raining and my kids had made this observation that every time I had come to NCF to preach, it would rain. And, uh, you know, normally rain, uh, aside from, I guess, the story in Genesis about Noah and, I don't know, the flood that destroyed the earth, generally in ancient society, rain was a sign of God's blessing. So you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, it's great to be here finally in person. Uh, we're just over a year um, since the pandemic hit, and uh, you know we still need to be careful. Um, vaccination rates are going up. Uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. But I remember early on uh, when we first encountered uh, this virus, we didn't really know too much about it. We were all locked down. We couldn't go out. We couldn't do the things that we normally do. And I notice, you know, when you go online and you read articles or you read things on social media, there were generally uh, two experiences that people would talk about. Right? The first, uh, for some, there was a time of uh, heightened anxiety. Right? People were losing jobs. Uh, people were getting sick. Loved ones were dying. And for others, it was a time of incredible loneliness, right? especially if you're single, especially if you live in the city, you know, a lot of businesses would close down and be boarded up. Um, you were stuck in your apartment. You couldn't really go out. You couldn't really socialize. You couldn't really see anybody. Um, so those are kind of two experiences that I noticed. And maybe, you know, to kind of cope with this, I remember a number of articles would come out saying, you know, in light of all that's happening, maybe now is an opportunity to stop, to slow down, uh, to look inside and, you know, figure out what's truly important to us. You know, who are we? You know, figure out what our lives are really about. And I remember I certainly had those moments, you know, when we were shut down. And I wonder if you guys had those moments as well. Uh, well, coming to our text, you know, this is early in John's account of Jesus' ministry. And I think it speaks into this idea of, you know, what is it that is important to us? You know, who are we? What are our lives really about? Um, our outline for today is really uh, two phrases in our text that I think divide our, uh, that will divide today's talk pretty nicely. First is directly from verse 38. What are you seeking? That's our first point. 
And our second point will be finding Jesus. All right, so our first point, what are you seeking? Right, this is the question that Jesus asks the two, uh, the two men who are following him in verse 38. Uh, we learn later on in uh, verse 40 that you know, one of the guys is Andrew, and the other guy um, is, uh, most commentators agree, it's uh, John, the author of this book. Jesus asks, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? I think the ESV here is a pretty faithful translation of the original language that the text was written in, but I like the way the NIV translates this sentence. The NIV translates it as, what do you want? Right? I think it really captures the punch in modern English, the impact that Jesus had to these followers of him. What are you seeking? What do you want? Right? Andrew and John were disciples of a man named John the Baptist, not to be confused with John, the, the author of this book. Uh, John the Baptist, for uh, those of us a little less familiar, um, he was a prophet. And a prophet is someone who receives direct revelation from God and speaks to the people. And it was on the basis of John the Baptist's testimony where he said, behold the Lamb of God, that his two disciples, Andrew and John, would leave him and go to follow Jesus. Right, so coming back to the question, Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? What do you want? You know, you ever wonder how you would answer that question if Jesus is right there in front of you, in the flesh? You know, what are you seeking? What do you want? How would you answer that question about life in general? And I remember people would ask me some version of that question, you know, all throughout my life. And, uh, you know, I remember in my teens, uh, I had terrible acne. All I really wanted was clear skin. And I thought that would be great. Uh, in my 20s and 30s, um, I was figuring myself out. I wanted things like, I don't know, acceptance, a uh, vague sense of purpose. That's my 20s and 30s. Now, I'm in my 40s, right? Well, who am I kidding? I'm still trying to figure things out, right? But I think the question is still very appropriate for all of us. What are you seeking? What do you want? Well, looking back at our text, when Jesus asks Andrew and John, what do you want? I think it's interesting, maybe significant, that they didn't really have an answer. Right? Instead, they ask him a question back. They say, Rabbi, you know, where are you staying? And maybe it's because Andrew and John didn't really have an answer to that question. Because right? notice Jesus doesn't, you know, I, and I think Jesus is okay with the fact that they didn't have an answer to that question. Because notice Jesus doesn't really condemn them. He doesn't get on their case for not having an answer. He seemed to respect the fact that they were at least looking. All right, so I say to you, maybe some of you think you know exactly what you want. There are some of others of you, maybe, you know, you're kind of getting started out in your career. You're not sure what it is that you want. But we're here at church. I think you're in the right place, Christian or not, member or new joiner. I think the invitation that Jesus extends to Andrew and John is the same invitation he's extending to us. Come, he says, and you'll see. And that brings me to my second point, finding Jesus, finding Jesus. Now, obviously, something must have happened while they were hanging out with Jesus. Some light bulb moment, some moment of clarity, because after staying with him, Andrew goes out in verse 40, looks for his brother, Simon, who would later be called Peter, and he tells him, bro, guess what? Guess what? We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Now, John, the author um, of our text, uh, thought it was important to note to his readers that Messiah means Christ. 
And some of us who have gone to church for a little bit, we know that Christ is not really Jesus' last name, right? Christ is a title. It means anointed one. And for us, I think we have the entire Bible. We know how the story ends. We have millennia of church history and systematic theology. And therefore, we have a more nuanced idea of what it means to be the Christ. We have a more nuanced idea of what it means to be the anointed one. But for a person of Andrew's time, or any Jew at the time, he had probably something very specific in mind, right, when he said, we have found the Messiah. And without getting into all the weeds, uh, we know that he probably thought that the Messiah was some sort of kingly figure, right? He read about David from the Old Testament in the past. The Messiah was some kingly figure who had a special connection with God, and he would lead God's people, teach God's people, and save God's people, right? People like Andrew and John, right? And they had just spent the entire afternoon with this man, and he doesn't ex- articulate exactly why, but you read on and you'll find they left everything, right? You read on in the Gospels, you read on the story of John, they, f- they left everything, careers, their homes, to follow this man, Jesus, who they thought was Messiah. Somehow in Jesus, they found the answer to that question, what are you seeking? What do you want? It struck at the core of who they were. What are you seeking? What do you want? You know, I I wonder, you know, how they got there. You know, like, they spent the afternoon. John doesn't really tell us what exactly they talked about. You know, I wonder how they got there. What, What did they talk about? What did they see? What exactly did Jesus say? Right? Uh, but by zooming in, zooming out, and looking at the Bible as a whole, um, we can probably reasonably deduce what they didn't talk about, right? We're trying to figure out what did they talk about. We probably know what they didn't talk about. What did they not see when they spent that afternoon with Jesus? What did they not see? Right? I can tell you for sure they probably didn't see physical beauty, right? physical beauty. Isaiah the prophet, foreseeing the coming of Jesus, said this in Isaiah 53, verse 2. He's had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, right? It wasn't physical beauty that they saw in Jesus. I don't think it was monetary wealth either, right? Jesus, as he moves on and does his ministry, he's doing all these miracles. And um, in Luke chapter 9, we get this story. There's There's a man who sees Jesus. He seizes him and he says, Jesus, you who are doing all these miracles, you who are showing obvious signs that you are someone special, he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies like this in verse 58, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Jesus is saying to him, don't expect riches if you want to become one of my disciples. I don't even have a nice house to live in, right, that I can call home, right? Are you still with me, right? Don't expect wealth if you're following me. I can tell you third, it wasn't pleasure, right? Jesus never promises pleasure in this life. But I'll tell you for sure that he does promise suffering. Right? In John chapter 15, he tells his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Right? So they didn't see physical beauty. They didn't see wealth. They didn't see pleasure. Right? It wasn't status either. One of Jesus' core principles he lays out in Mark chapter 10, verse 43. If you want to be great, you must be servant of all. Right? No physical beauty, no wealth, no pleasure, no status. 
And I call these things out because, let's be honest, if someone had the power, if someone, if someone was standing here in front of you and they had the power to predict the future with 100% accuracy, if they had the ability to transcend time and space, if someone had the power to, to stop the sun from moving, who with the snap of his fingers can calm storms, multiply food so that we never go hungry, heal all your physical flaws, all the things that you don't want to deal with about your body or your face, who can raise people from the dead. If someone like this asked you, what are you seeking? What do you want? Aren't things like physical beauty, wealth, pleasure, status, aren't these the kinds of categories that our minds immediately jump to? But this was not what Jesus was about. This is not what Andrew and John saw, for sure. What are you seeking? What do you want? And I think we can say pretty confidently that Andrew and John saw none of these things in Jesus, yet they came out with hard excitement. They said, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Right? So again, I wonder, what was it? What did they hear? What did Jesus tell them? What did he communicate? What did they see? What are you seeking? What do you want? You know, I think if we look at our text again, you know, maybe the key in answering that question, what they saw, what they heard, what they understood, maybe the key to answering that question is at the top of our passage, right, with John the Baptist's proclamation. Right, the, the statement that caused Andrew and John to follow Jesus in the first place, what was that, what was that statement? He said, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this is actually the second time that uh, John the Baptist says it. The first time was actually the day before, if you look up in verse 29. Um, but in verse 29, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, he added a little more context. He, it was a, there was a second phrase there that he added. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? In verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of the world. I have to believe that Andrew's excitement was somehow connected to how Jesus would take away the sin of the world. Now, we confessed our sin, you know, during worship today. Um, you know, you hear the word sin, you know, especially at church, and it, it's not the most, you know, popular subject to talk about these days. Uh, but it's there in our text. And if John the Baptist is right, I think dealing with sin was at the heart of the ministry of Jesus. All right, so what is sin? What is sin? Now, I know, you know, we went through the Heidelberg Catechism today. I know, uh, by and large, at NCF, you guys go through a number of the Reformed Catechisms. Uh, one of the most beloved catechisms that we have is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And Westminster Shorter Catechism, num uh, question number 14, it asks, what is sin? What is sin? And the answer is this, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is a failure to measure up to what God requires. Sin is a disobedience of any of his commands. You know, we might intuitively think that, you know, if sin is this feeling of dirtiness, this uh, evil or some kind of moral failure, and that's part of it. Right? But sin is sin primarily because it rubs against the commandments of God, right? So sin is a transgression of God's commandments, and that makes us ask, you know, why should I care, right? How is that relevant to me? Why is that so bad, right? You know, we think about, like, sin. We think about disobedience to God. We think about, uh, 
we think about phrases of like, you know, what does God require? And, you know, um, you know, not listening, disobeying, transgressing his law. And we can react like kids, you know, kids with parents who do what uh, Koreans call chansori, uh, right? Chansori. Did you ever hear that phrase, chansori? We all know what that is. Chansori is like nagging, right? I hear my wife tell my kids all the time, you know, clean your room, go to your bed, you know, quiet down, lower your volume, right? You think chansori and immediately you think, you know, the fun is over, right? Obey God, you know, conform to his law, fun's over. It's chansori, right? But a few, the, but the catechism, if you look down, a few questions later in question 19, it tells us why we should care about sin. And it tells us that sin's most devastating impact is that we've lost communion with God. We've lost communion with God and therefore we're under wrath and curse, we're made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Right? Great statement. Great, concise, biblical statement on the consequences of sin. In other words, sin is the reason why there's sickness and disease. Sin is the reason why there's social injustice. There's economic injustice. Why there's racism, systemic racism. Why there's cancer and death. Sin is the reason why there's condemnation and judgment. Uh, Jesus made this connection of the course of his ministry. You know, often, I thought it was strange, he would heal people of blindness or sickness. And while he's healing them, he would say things like, your sins are forgiven. There's a connection between sin and all the bad things that we experience in this world. You know, when we think about sin and its consequences, it's not like God is some like, insecure deity who gets all pissy when you don't do what he commands. Right? He's not some like, small God, you know, you transgress his commandments and zap, you know, I'm going to get you for not listening to me. That's not how sin works. Sin at its heart is about separation from God. It causes us to be apart from God. And separation from God separates you from everything that is good everything that makes life enjoyable, everything that leads to flourishing, sin in a real way, if we live into it, if we lean into it, if we stay on its trajectory, leads to our disintegration. You know, early on um, in my marriage, uh, you know, I, it was Valentine's Day and uh, I wanted to buy flowers for my wife. So I did what any reasonable man would do. I went online and I looked for the lowest cost cheapest vendor that would deliver a dozen roses and you know I got it I laid it on the table uh, and when my wife got home and she saw it number one she was not impressed right so if you're going to get flowers from my wife make sure they're nice right but number two her feedback was this understanding you know, I was a seminary student at the time uh, my wife was working she was a sole breadwinner of the house and her feedback was this you know for what we got you know for the money her money that I had spent, right? It was just a matter of time before the flowers would die. You know, the flowers, right, in a bouquet, they're, they're separated from their roots. And they're separated from their soil. Right, you can buy, like, chemicals, you can buy drops, you, could, you know, you could, you know, put coffee in your vase to try to extend the life of the flower for as long as you want, but just given time, and eventually flowers will wither, right? A silly story, but I don't want to detract from the point. We are, brothers and sisters, as human beings, we're derivative beings. We were created to, to live and move 
and to find ourselves, mind, body, and spirit in intimate union with our creator. And the catechism merely describes the reality of what happens when we decide to assert our independence, when we decide to think that I know best what's for me. I know best how to take care of myself. The catechism just describes the reality of what happens when we think like that. We think we're acting in our best interest, but really we're missing the mark. So coming back to our story, I think for Andrew and John, their, their eyes were open to the fact that any solution, any path towards figuring out what they were looking for, what they were seeking, right, made no sense if they didn't first deal with their sin. You know, uh, yeah, people usually had one of three reactions to Jesus you know, as he was ministering. If you read on in the Gospels, they either saw him as a threat and they wanted to destroy him, they, or they saw him as a, like a novelty, right? And, you know, that's nice, but, you know, maybe next time, you know, I have other th- important things to take care of. Either way, you know, they kind of rejected Jesus. But a third category of people, if you see, they gave their lives to him. They gave their lives to Jesus. Andrew and John, they ended up giving their lives to Jesus. And this is the common thread that I see for those people who give their lives to Jesus. Jesus revealed their sin. He saw through all their facades, all the fronts. He saw to the core of the person the good and the bad, and instead of condemnation that they deserved, instead of being outcast from his presence, he actually accepted them. He healed them. He connected them to himself, the, the source of all life, and they found themselves, I would argue they found their true selves in their connection with Jesus. But if Jesus was who he was, We call him the Son of God. We call him God incarnate, the second person of the Holy Trinity. If Jesus was who he was, the Holy One of God, the one who, by the way, you read up in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He says, his sandals, I am unworthy to untie his sandals. If Jesus was who he was, how could he see their sin? How could he know their sin, yet still accept them? How could he see sin, this holy God? How could he see sin yet still accept them? Like, you know, if, God forbid, someone assaults my wife and kids, right? God forbid, but the next day I go up to the guy who assaulted them and invite, you know, I invite them over for dinner, right? And I act as if nothing happened. You know, anyone in their right mind would say, yo, Pete, that's kind of weird, right? Th- that's not right. right. You have to deal with the crime, You have to deal with the sin. That needs to be dealt with before there's any sense of acceptance, before there's any sense of reconciliation. For Jesus to see through the heart of people like Andrew and John, people like you and me, yet still embrace, yet still accept, there needed to be some sort of reconciliation. Jesus had to deal with their sin. And he did. He did this because he was the Lamb of God. That was John the Baptist's original proclamation. Jesus was the Lamb of God. You know, uh, when John the Baptist said this, scholars actually debate whether he understood the significance of what he was saying. I understand that, you know, for anyone to call somebody the Lamb of God, that was almost unprecedented at his time. We're at church, we hear that phrase all the time, oh, Jesus is the Lamb of God. But for someone at that time, early on in Jesus' ministry, to ascribe to Jesus that title 
the Lamb of God. That was pretty extraordinary. And I don't know if John the Baptist understood fully what he was saying because, you know, you read on the gospel, it seems like everyone else besides Jesus was surprised at the fact that he ended his life on the cross as this sacrificial lamb. But, you know, but sometimes, you know, prophets in the Bible are given words to say that end up having a deeper meaning than what they understand at the time that they're saying it, right? For us now, we have the entire scripture again and we can see more plainly the significance of what that meant when John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God. Maybe John understood, maybe he didn't, but Jesus understood. Right? Jesus understood this. For him to accept, for him to heal, for him to embrace in spite of all the sin that we had. Right? Because sin rightfully deserves condemnation. Right? You don't want God? Fine. You know, go on your way. Right? Suit yourself. Justice for the sinner is condemnation. If you don't want God, you don't get anything. And you get your just condemnation. Right? But that's not what God wants. God doesn't want to judge us. God doesn't want to leave us in our sins. So he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, who came as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now I referenced Isaiah earlier before. Isaiah was a prophet who lived uh, 700 years before Jesus. Right? 700 years before Jesus. And God would reveal to Isaiah that sometime in the future, someone will be coming. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. Someone who's, someone's going to come sometime down the future who would be like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And Isaiah 53 says this, someone smitten by God and afflicted who would be pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Right? And as the New Testament authors would write about the life of Jesus after the fact, they understood that this prophecy that Isaiah had said 700 years before was a prophecy about Jesus Christ himself. He was the Lamb of God that was led to the slaughter on the cross. Right? And they also understood that this cosmic exchange happened on the cross where he died, where the condemnation that we deserve was put on him. And all the rewards and all the righteousness that he deserved was put on us. Literally, he was crushed so that by his wounds, we can be healed. Right? So Jesus, knowing this was the final destiny, this was his final destiny while he was here on earth, the God of all glory, the God of creation, the God through whom all things live and move and have their being, he stopped, he saw, Andrew and John received him by faith and their lives would be changed forever. He stopped, he saw, and he saved. Right, brothers and sisters, this is the, the good news for us. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, it was Easter. And during Easter, one of the things that we like to proclaim is that he is risen. That Jesus, our Savior, who had died on the cross, three days later rose from the dead. That's what we just confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism. Right, it's funny, I have this section on the Apostles' Creed that I want to talk to you about. We say this in the Apostles' Creed, right? That on the third day, he rose from the dead. And now we know the significance of what that means. The third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. This is the next phrase. He ascended into heaven and he sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And part of the significance of this is that even today, even today, God is continually at work. God is on the move. 
He looks at all of us who are walking here on this journey of life. And while he's working, while he's working, while we're journeying, while he's working, he stops. He sees. And he says, if you receive me by faith, I will save you. All right, and maybe today he's stopping right now. Right, maybe he's looking at you. Maybe he's calling you. Right, he's asking you to, to lay down your life, to trust him with it. You know, what are you seeking? What do you want at the existential core of your being? The answer you're looking for, according to our text, according to the author of all life, according to our creator, is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Christ himself. And the question is, how do you get him? How do you get him? Right? Getting Jesus isn't about putting your best foot forward. Right? You need to do, as he says in Mark chapter 8, you need to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Not affirm yourself. Not elevate yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Brothers and sisters, he says, if you try to anxiously hold on to your life, if you try to make something of yourself, if you try to append and add things onto your life, you will lose it. That is a promise from God. But if you lose yourself in him, for his sake and for the gospels, Jesus promises that you will find it. Right? Christianity isn't primarily about principles of living. It isn't about you know, finding a solution. Christianity is about finding Jesus himself. And I plead with you, answer the call. Open your heart to him, and your life will be changed forever. I'll conclude with this, uh, maybe a note of practical application. Um, actually, no, it's more like practical uh, expectations, right? A note of practical expectations, and we'll, we'll conclude with this. You know, our passage starts out with uh, the proclamation of John the Baptist, right? Um, when, you know, when Jesus came uh, to, to the scene and he saw John the Baptist, John the Baptist received this prophetic revelation, you know, like we said before, oh, this guy, sandals, I am unworthy to untie. I baptize with water, he's going to baptize with fire, right? And when Jesus came, and when John baptized Jesus, people all around him heard this, right? Voice coming from the heavens, you are my son with whom I am well pleased, right? But as so, you know, we, all, we know this about Jesus. We know John the Baptist had special revelation. But as Jesus would enter into his active ministry, you know, as Jesus was doing his thing, John the Baptist, what happened to him? He would end up in prison, right? This great man of God, right? And Jesus actually says, you know, there's, there's no, you know, there's no one, you know, greater among those born of women than John the Baptist. Yet, John the Baptist, at the end of his life, would end up in prison, and the sad story is he would eventually die there, right? And he didn't do anything wrong, by the way, to go to prison. In fact, he went to prison for doing something right, right? You can read about it in Matthew 11 or, or Luke 7. In any case, John the Baptist is in prison. I feel like he's really struggling. He's struggling, right? I, I think he, he sees the end is coming for his life, and I feel like he's really struggling. He's looking at his circumstances. He's looking at how his life is ending, and I think he's genuinely wondering. He's wondering that, you know, I, I've been doing the work of God my entire life. I have denied myself. I have taken up my cross. 
I lost everything for the sake of the gospel. I lost everything to prophesy about this man, Jesus Christ. Yet I'm in prison. Why is my life like this? Right, so he sends two of his disciples to go and ask, hey, Jesus, are you really the one? Are you really the one? Or is someone else coming? And Jesus replies like this. We see it in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. He answers them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I want to emphasize this again. Losing our lives for Jesus. Finding Jesus won't necessarily make our lives pretty. It won't make our lives rich. It won't make our lives comfortable. It might, but it might not. But losing our lives for Jesus won't necessarily give us the life we think we want or the things we think we need. Yes, in Christ, there will be times when we lament. There will be times of sadness. There will be times of suffering, but cling to Jesus in the midst of the sadness, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the darkness, and there is depth, and there is joy, and there is perseverance, and there is character, and there is hope. What we need most of all, in spite of our circumstances, is for Christ to heal, to cleanse, and to take away our sin, to one day raise us from death to life. We need to be reconciled with our God, with our creator. Because the promise is this, the world as we know it is not the end. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will one day return. Just as he ascended into heaven, he will one day return. And I promise you, no worldly thing we achieved, no amount of wealth we have acquired will matter at that time. For those who seek and for those who find him, who have trusted him, who have put their faith in him, and to those who overcome, we will rise again. We will see heaven come down on a recreated earth and we will finally see God face to face and there we will have life to the full. Let's pray together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father in heaven, help us to see that what we seek, that what we truly want is Christ himself. I pray that our souls would not rest until we heed that call and we find our rest in you. We thank you in Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.